Romans 1, 16 through 17. Part of this brief passage this morning is a quote from Habakkuk 2. You will, we will realize the importance of that once we get into the message. The Apostle Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Our message this morning the Latin words, post tenebrae lux, after darkness light. Shall we pray? Lord, we are thankful that you have given us your word and its truth and its power, and we pray this morning that you might encourage us by what we find here. Your words have power, spiritual power within our hearts and our minds to change to convert, to renew. And as we examine one example in history, among many, may we follow his example as he sought strength from your word and its truth, as he lived in the light of your gospel. May we be bold to do so as well. We ask this for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. 504 years ago, October 31st fell on a Wednesday. An Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther walked up to the church door and posted 95, they called them, called them theses back then, they were statements, articles of debate. If many of you have ever been on a debate team in high school or college, you would have a statement given to you that you would be asked, both teams for and against, to challenge, and would usually say resolved. That is a thesis. Can it stand on its own merits of logic and reason, or can it be challenged and brought down? That's what debate teams do. And Martin Luther wanted to debate men, educated men in the church, on these questions he had about the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. They were all written in Latin. He did not want the common people to know what he was talking about. He just wanted the educated people to come to him and ask him and debate. Let's talk about this. Is the church correct or is the church wrong? He wanted to renew and restore and revive the church. He did not want to cause a split. But we consider him one of the first one of the great reformers but he was not the first there were many before him in the 12th century peter waldo 
responsible for, for writing, translating the Bible into the French language, started a denomination, what was known then as the Waldensians. John Wycliffe in the 14th century was considered to be the morning star of the English Reformation. He translated the scripture into the English language. In fact, much of the King James Version was taken word for word from John Wycliffe's translation and used by King James. Later, in the, in the latter 14th and early 15th century, the life of John Huss spanned. He perished in 1415, burned at the stake for heresies. What were his heresies? He called out the Roman Catholic Church on their errors. As well his, did one of his supporters, Jerome of Prague, who was also killed or martyred for his faith. Those of you who have ever watched any videos about rock quarries, we see them today being construction companies harvesting great quantities of rock using dynamite. And in ancient times, all the way back to the Egyptians, they had to do all of that by hand. And the way they would do that was they would draw a line. This section of rock is what we need. They would draw a line and they would take their chisels and they would just scribe a little groove along that line. And they'd take wedges and mallets and they would drive them in along that line, six inches apart, four, five, uh, just, just equal distances apart until they got all the way through that line and that thing would eventually break almost smooth, clean break, all the way to the bottom of that rock. Rocks larger than a man could reach and touch the top of, they could split by that method. We see throughout the history of the church these reformers, each and every one of them working on that line, driving a wedge into the heresy that was in the Roman Catholic Church, until finally Martin Luther came along, the final one hit that mallet, that wedge with that mallet, and it split the church. It was not what he intended to do, but it changed the world. There were two things that helped him. Well, two th there was one thing that helped him. There was his, his faith, and there was also the invention of the printing press. The printing press in the 16th century was very much like the Internet today. In fact, there were just a few days after Martin Luther posted his complaints on the church door, they came up missing. Someone took them down and took them to the printer, had them translated to the, English, to the common language, the German language, and spread. Started handing these out. The Roman Catholic Church had become a hard rock of resistance to the gospel. They did not permit reading of scripture in the common language. They wanted Whatever you understand about the Bible, you must hear from us. That's what they taught. 
They did not permit any untrained people to interpret it. They also taught that there was a works righteousness. You've got to be good enough, and we determine how good you are. They were very pharisaical in their salvation, offer of salvation. You've got to be good enough, and you, if you're not good enough, then you must rely upon us. Instead of grace and love, there was hopelessness and fear within the church. Martin Luther was not the first. There were many who had come before him. Many had marked and scribed the stone. Many had begun pounding wedges at the cost of their own lives. But Martin Luther's influence finally made the church crack. He was the one that made the proclamation, there is salvation by grace through faith. There is salvation by grace through faith. Martin Luther was meant to be a lawyer. His father was a coppersmith or a copper miner. Worked very hard to put his son in university to study to become a lawyer because he wanted his son to be well off. And on his way home one night, after studying at university, he was riding through a storm on horseback. And nearby, a lightning bolt struck a tree knocked him from his horse. He cried out, Oh, Saint Anna, save me, and I will become a monk. He didn't say that in vain. When he got home that night, he told his father, and his father was nearly disowned him. He had spent a lot of money sending him to college. And Martin Luther was going to give it all up to live in poverty. He entered a monastery, studied for the priesthood, was ordained, began teaching theology at the University of Wittenberg in 1507. He was 24 years old. In 1512, he had earned his doctorate in theology. But in all of this, something still haunted his own sins. He felt enormous guilt. He could not get rid of it. He could find no grace in Scripture. He could find no grace in the Lord. He could find no grace in his diligent, faithful obedience. There was no peace. He would fast often. He would spend long hours in prayer. He would go frequently to confession. His confessor, Johann von Staupitz, would wait for hours, and Luther would come in sometimes two or three times a day. And Stolpitz finally said, Luther, please, why don't you wait until you've committed the sin worthy of confession? Luther didn't know then the Holy Spirit was already working on his heart, exposing his sin and his shame in a very clear and profound way. Most Christians aren't that sensitive. Most Christians don't feel that much guilt. I don't know if that's a good thing or if that's just something that the Lord has relieved us from. Because of what he has done for us in salvation. But God was calling him. God was preparing him. Martin Luther, in all of this 
guilt that he carried, he still understood to gain eternal life, to be able to stand before a holy and righteous God, a man had to be perfect. And Martin knew he was not perfect. He went on a pilgrimage to Rome, his first pilgrimage. The first He thought, oh, I will go to Rome, a holy city, and, and I will be able to get to talk to and, and debate and discuss spiritual issues with the bishops and the cardinals there. But when he got there, he just saw the corruption within the church. No one cared. There was immorality there. There was dishonesty there. And he, it confused him. And I don't think it disillusioned him. He knew scripture was true. He knew there was something there. He kept looking Instead of to men, instead of the church, he kept looking toward the Lord in the word of Scripture. And he would take several pilgrimages to Rome, several trips there. Because he wanted to be a good Catholic. He wanted to be a good Christian. And there were some steps there at the Vatican called the Lateran Steps. It was believed, it was taught, that these steps were moved there by an angel. These steps were the steps the Lord Jesus walked on his way to the cross. And so many people would go there and on their knees climb those steps, saying a prayer at each step on their knees, and Luther would do that. All of this guilt for his own sins, seeking relief from it, seeking grace of God, seeking some solution to find, how can I be righteous before the Lord? Can I ever be good enough? What changed him? What made the difference? Frank Borman wrote in a, a book, A Bunch of Everlastings. That's the title of the book, A Bunch of Everlastings. The testimony of Dr. Paul Luther. Martin's son. In the year 1544, my father, in the presence of us all, narrated the whole story of his journey to Rome. He acknowledged with great joy that in that city, through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he had come into the knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. It happened this way. As he repeated his prayers on the Lateran staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind. The just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as the chief foundation for his doctrine. One verse from an Old Testament prophet cracked Martin Luther's heart. He finally realized all I need do is believe what God promised me in Christ Jesus, that he is my righteousness, he is my redemption, he is my deliverance, and I'm free. And that's what you and I must do. Christ Jesus is our freedom, our deliverance. He is our righteousness. Martin Luther realized liberation from guilt and bondage is found in Christ Jesus alone.
the righteous shall live by faith. Martin Luther began, continued to, to teach at the University of Wittenberg. He continued to write documents that became quite controversial. And because of the printing press was a new thing, he, he continued to publish some of these writings and some of these documents, and it began to really irritate the Catholic Church. In 1516, this, this was one year before he posted his complaints. In 1516, a Dominican friar was sent to Germany by the Roman Catholic Church to raise money. The Roman Catholic Church wanted to enhance the Vatican. There was already a chapel there. They wanted a city. So let's sell indulgences. And a monk by the name of Tetzel traveled the countryside and came into Germany and was had a little band, a little entertainment group, and songs were sung. When a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Promising that you just give us some money and your loved ones who have passed away and are waiting in purgatory trying to expatiate their sins in order to gain heaven, you just give us money and they can be released. From his own academic studies, Luther, Luther knew there was a big question about the existence of purgatory. While it was established in, had already been established in Catholic doctrine, there was a question about whether it was correct or not. And this, this practice of selling these indulgences was the final straw for Luther. That's why he posted those complaints on the, not just this one, but there were 95 complaints, 95 challenges to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And within those was specific question about these indulgences, stating, and I'm paraphrasing his words, if the church has the authority to release anyone, any soul, from purgatory, why would the pope not do it for love? But he does it for money. He thought that was an offense. October 31st, 1517 was pivotal in world history. Why so? In Matthew 28, our Lord Jesus Christ said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. For nearly 16, that was God's great commandment, great commission for his church. And she had gone astray.
for 1,600 years, that church was the only church the Western world knew. And that church, over time, began to decline theologically, they began to decline politically, and they began to decline morally. Without repentance, without correction. The church forgot the fact that she was sinful in need of repentance and redemption. She became proud and arrogant and oppressive. The church had forgotten that she had been washed in the blood of the Lamb of God. She put on a mask of self-righteousness instead that was false. The church became proud and assumed authority she was never given. At the Council of Florence, 33 years before Luther was born, two doctrines were established officially. First, in all decisions pertaining to the church, the declarations of the Pope are infallible. When the Pope speaks on behalf of the church, he speaks the words of God, according to the Roman Catholic Church, that they cannot be renounced, they are infallible, they are inerrant. That's adding to Scripture. That's new revelation. That is something that the Bible forbids. The Pope does not have the authority to speak inerrantly, infallibly. It's a dangerous thing to declare. Only God's words are infallible. Do you want to understand the truth of God? The first thing you need to remember you are a sinner in need of grace. If you miss that, you'll get everything else wrong. God no, no, will not reveal himself to the proud. God will not reveal himself to the arrogant. God will not reveal himself to someone who refuses to humble themselves in his presence. And if you remember that that first thing, that you are a sinner in need of his grace, and you never forget that simple fact, God will keep his promise with you. He will save. He will redeem. He will restore. The church then forgot his promises. And quite frankly, quite honestly, when you look at the church in the world today, not just the Roman Catholic Church, I'm, I'm talking about Evangelical churches today are straying from the truth. There have been church leaders whom I have books and I have recommended whom I will not recommend anymore because of what they are saying today. That is in support of all of the error and the wrong that is going on in this world today. The church tends to forget the promises of the Lord they redefine the gospel. They make it some kind of, in the Roman Catholic days, these ancient days of the Roman Catholic times, it was works righteousness. Today it is social gospel. It's the same kind of works righteousness. You've got to be good enough to show who God is, but there is no reliance on the grace of the Lord Jesus for the sinner. There's no call to repentance. 
I'm not Catholic bashing. There's the Roman Catholic Church does not hold the patent license on heresy. There are many churches, many denominations that support wrong teaching. The church, the Roman Catholic Church, had come to a place where they considered themselves infallible. They had become proud. They said, if you want redemption, if you want to gain heaven, you must do it our way. So the infallibility of the Pope as he speaks on behalf of the church was one doctrine at the Florence Council of Florence. The second doctrine established that had a bearing on what was going on now was this idea of indulgences can release you from purgatory. Quoting, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, some souls are not sufficiently free from sin and its consequences to enter the state of heaven immediately, nor are they so sinful as to be destined for hell either. Such souls, ultimately destined to be united with God in heaven, must first endure purgatory, a state of purification. In purgatory, souls achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Again, if you're not good enough, if you don't do enough good works here on heaven, you have to finish up in purgatory before you go on to heaven. In this life, if you're not good enough to earn a way to heaven, you have a second chance. And then they came in selling indulgences. Those who were working for that second chance get a free pass if you give us some money so we can build the church building. If you want redemption, if you want to gain heaven, you must do it our way. Even then, you only have the hope of purgatory. Martin Luther had a sensitive heart. He desired the Lord. He knew that he was a sinner. He diligently pursued works of righteousness, but they were never enough. He never felt free until he was revealed that light from he read from Habakkuk, we, we read from Paul in Romans, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. There was the light. Can you be righteous by works? No. Can our earthly works ever be good enough? No. Righteousness by faith in the promise of God there is your freedom. Just believe what God promised. Just believe what he said. Just believe what he teaches. And you're free. As Martin Luther studied church scripture, he began to see where so many things in the church were wrong. So many teachings and so many places, they were in error. And the sale of indulgences to finance the building of the basilica was just the last straw. He saw it as a rule by fear and intimidation for the purchase of political wealth and power. Martin Luther, because of his writings, because of his teachings, stood in the way. He was shedding light upon their spiritual darkness, and they did not like it. 
For the next four years, he began to publish his writings, exposing the church's error. And then finally, he was so well-known, had so much influence, caused so much resistance to what the church was teaching, and brought so many questions upon what the church had done, that he was summoned. It was called the Diet of Worms in Germany. This was not just before Catholic bishops and archbishops and Catholic leaders. This was before the emperor, Charles V, and princes and rulers. This was not just a religious meeting. This was a political meeting. Not just the power and authority of the church, but the power and authority of the state. One man was called to recant to take back everything he had taught, everything that he had printed. You can Google the document. It's about two pages of typeface print when it's translated in English. But most of you are probably familiar with his concluding statement. Since your most serene majesty and your mightinesses require me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council, because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even glaring inconsistency with themselves. He's standing before every powerful ruler, both state and church. He's telling them, one man, you're wrong. I will not recant. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against the conscience. Here I stand. I, can do, I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. When we forget the promises of God, our understanding of God and his word, it all becomes redefined. We lose our purpose. For living. When we forget the promises of God, some of us become doubters. Some of us become very legalistic. Oh, well, I've, I've got to do good. I've got to do better. I've got to do more in order to win his favor. No, you're forgetting the promises of God. When we forget the promises of God, some people even become unbelievers. They doubt his word. They see that works are futile. They just stop trying. It's so easy to become a heretic. We need to remember there are promises from God. It's been nearly... It's been over 30 years ago 
This is from the Daily Bread, but it fits. It reminds us of the promises of God that we must rest in, that we must embrace, that we must remind ourselves of. If we're going to stand in the face of great resistance to the gospel and to truth today, then we've, not, we've got to lean heavily upon his word. A promise from God, a promise from Scripture is a statement we can depend on with absolute confidence. When God promises rest, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is his promise from Matthew 11. God's cleansing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. God's presence. I will never leave you or forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. God's protection. I am thy shield and sure, strong buckler. Genesis 15, 1. God's power. I will strengthen you. Isaiah 41. God's provision. I will help you. God's leading. When he calls out his sheep, he goes before them. John 10, 4, a great shepherd. God's purposes. For I know your thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Prophet Jeremiah. God's goodness. No good thing will he withhold from them it works uprightly. Psalm 84. God's faithfulness. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. 1 Samuel 22. God's guidance. The meek, he will guide. Psalm 25. God's wise plan. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 We have all of these promises from him. We have liberty and freedom in Christ Jesus. We have his righteousness because he has promised to give it to those who believe him and trust in what he has done for you. To those who turn from the sin and recognize their need and their spiritual poverty may have all of his wealth spiritually Eternally, forever. We live in a day and a time when the church seems to be very, very confused. We need to remember and stand firm in the face of all of the confusion we see around us because even today, if we had the blessing of spiritual eyes like Elisha prayed for his servant, we would see we are still surrounded by a host of angels watching over everything we do for the glory of God. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for your word and its power and its truth. 
pray, we pray, Lord, that we might be faithful to you in, this, in these dark days. Help us always to serve you with faithfulness and with love and with diligence. It's for the glory of God we pray. Amen.